Would you turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 11, where we have been for several weeks. And if you're using the Bible that's in the pew, it's 1008, 1008. We'll read this summary of this event with Abraham, and then we're going to back up to Genesis 22 and actually read it uh, as it was originally given to us. <clears throat> but this first is the writer's summary and teaching about it as he's pointing these Jewish believers, these are fellow Jews in the main who have believed upon Christ and now are being tempted, ironically, turning away from Messiah to what they would say is Yahweh, but it's actually turning away from Yahweh because they're turning away from Yahweh's Messiah. So the sad, tragic irony of thinking to go back into uh, Judaism and abandon Christ, the Messiah, because of the difficulties that they were facing over these many years and about to face even worse difficulties, it appears, under possibly the persecution with Nero. And they were being tempted now to abandon the faith in Messiah. So he is encouraging them to look to their roots, look now even to their father, Abraham, at the most difficult event of his life. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, let's back up to... Genesis chapter 22, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 22, verse, uh, page 16. Just so you can get a feel for this event if you have not read it or haven't read it recently. Now, the writer had said when he was tested, and so you'll see that in the very first verse. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, the reader knows this is a test. Abraham doesn't. Okay. Tested him, Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, last week we dealt with how the ethics of this, this command, and so we won't be touching on that this week. But uh, if you were, are interested in that question, you could listen to that uh, sermon. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and your offspring shall all the nations in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, open up our hearts to receive your precious word. Bless us that all that we do will be pleasing in your sight. Conform us to your ways. Grant us faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I was one of the pastors on staff at Park City's Presbyterian in Dallas about 10 years ago. And it was my regular day of the week to visit in the hospitals. This usually meant visiting at least three hospitals, sometimes four or five. So in the midst of the busy day, I visit this family whose child is sick in the hospital. Very sick. Terminal. This child had only a day or two to live. And this was the second time in a space of just a couple of years that they had lost a child to two different diseases. I hardly knew what I could say as I stood in front of them. I was... I was literally speechless. What could I say to this couple facing the imminent loss of a second child to a second fatal disease? Life just shocks us and shatters us sometimes. Sometimes it's so appalling we're just numb with horror. We feel like our 
insides have just been clawed out of us. We feel like we're in a cave-in. There's no way out and there's no sense. There's nothing steady. There's nothing sure. There's nothing solid. There's no direction. We, we don't even want to take another step. Just how it gets. Enter the story of Abraham. First of all, there's just the difficulty of this command. It for sure is the fact that this seems to run completely. It does run completely against his fatherly affection for this child that he had waited so long for. And we can't lessen that. But it's even bigger than that. He had said originally, go by yourself in chapter 12 of Genesis. Go by yourself and leave your place of Ur and go to a different country. So here, then he surrendered his past. But here he's being asked by sacrificing Isaac to surrender his whole future. There he had this promise of a new land and many descendants and becoming a blessing to the nations. And here at this command, not only would there be no promises, it seemed like all the promises are destroyed now. I mean, he waited and waited for the birth of his child to the point that the opportunity was gone to have a child. It was impossible to have a child. His body was dead. Sarah's womb was dead. Finally, the child is born. But now this the sentence of death upon his son is the sentence of death on God's promise and and God's faithfulness, the whole meaning of his relationship with God, his whole future. The whole reason he left everything and was living in tents all these years is just about to go. Because it was through Isaac that the promises would be fulfilled and no other. You read three times your only son. That's to emphasize you have no blessing. You have nothing except this one son. He is unique, the unique means of promise. And if Isaac is gone. Nothing that God had said would come true. Nothing. And really you think nothing he ever says again can I count on. You remember Paul's words concerning the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no heaven, if there's no resurrection, Paul says, we're the most pathetic people on, the, on earth. Because <laughs> we're giving up everything and we're dying and losing our lives for the sake of that resurrection. We are pathetic, if that's not true. If Isaac perishes, then Abraham is of all men most to be pitied. Everything he's lived for, everything he set his hopes upon is broken to pieces. Life has no meaning, no reason. God is either cruel or crazy or both. And we might as well grab for whatever happiness we find because we're all going to get it in the end. That, that's the kind of thing that would run through your mind. Run through my mind if it didn't Abraham's. I mean, this seems like God's mocking his own promise, mocking Abraham, 
mocking every choice and sacrifice he had made. Like all of life is just this joke, pointless, senseless joke. Chrysostom says God appeared in all of this to contradict God. That ever happened in your life? Like God, you're contradicting God here. I can't make heads nor tails. I don't see a promise. I don't sense a promise. I don't, this doesn't fit. Well, that's what was presented to Abraham. So, the difficulty of the command, but then the greatness of Abraham's faith. The difficulty of the command, but then the greatness of Abraham's faith. Somehow, in the midst of hearing that command, he was convinced of God's faithfulness. He was convinced of God's goodness. And he was convinced... Of his unlimited power and wisdom. He knew that he would still bring the promise to fulfillment. Even though for Abraham, how in the world is it going to happen? I can't piece it together. I can't. There's no way it can happen. Looking, there's no way it can happen. But he knew that the promise could not fail. He knew that God could resolve this problem even though he didn't know how or what he might do. You can see it in that it says the next day he got up. The next day he got up. A lot of modern writers, philosophers have gone through all the toil and torment that Abraham was going through. And no doubt he he was. You you feel it when his son asks for this. You feel it when he looks up and sees the mountain and when his son asked about the lamb and it was three days journey, it had to be horrible. And yet what is on the surface is that he got up the next morning and he left. He must have been in turmoil. They, they talk about how he loaded up the donkeys and everything was ready to go. Then he went and cut the wood and they wonder, was he confused? Is he in trauma here? What's going on there? It's quite unusual. Maybe he wanted to wait to the last minute to cut the wood that was going to sacrifice his son. But Matthew Henry says, We should reason down our doubts and fears by the consideration of the almighty power of God. I love that phrase. Reason down our doubts and fears as we consider the unlimited power of God. And that's what the writer in Hebrews 11 points to. He considered, and this means that once and for all, it means more than just considered, but he definitely was convinced that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And most writers would say, you get the hint of this when he said, we're both coming down this mountain. You're like, Abraham... (laughs) You're going to go sacrifice Isaac and you just told them you're both coming down the mountain. And so the writer is saying here that Abraham even believed that God would raise him from the dead. And you see earlier he's dealt with in verses 11 and 12 the birth of Isaac. So here's 
Abraham who believed God when his own body was dead and her womb was dead. It's as though there's no way that a child could be brought forth and yet God brings life from the dead. So isn't this just another step along those lines? Bringing life from the dead. He had already believed God for something so great. And he continued to believe in God's grace and His power and His faithfulness. He believed that your descendants will be named through Isaac. He had said that. And he continued to hold to it. David Dixon says, when we get hard commandments... We must lay out our reckoning how we may obey them and not how we may shift them. See, shift them, avoid them, turn away from them. We must lay out how we may obey them. Difficulties and impossibilities, as would appear, must be rolled over upon God. Think of a young man who knew, who thought even knew in his mind that he had made an unwise choice in an early marriage. Convinced, had good tangible evidence because of their extreme differences and incompatibility that it was an unwise choice. She realized it as well. So what happens when you say, there's no way I can love her. There's no way I can feel love toward her. There's no way for this to work out. And yet, he gives himself up to God. And sacrifices himself up to Christ, saying, you will give me grace. You will empower me. You will inflame my heart with all that I need. And I will give myself away to love her and give myself up to the will and power and grace of God. Or you're facing sin and temptation and there is no way. There's no way to turn away from it. There's no way to believe in the goodness of God and the reward of Christ to the degree that you can look upon that no longer as your treasure, but you can despise it and hate it and embrace Christ as your only treasure. And your, your passion for Christ overcomes another passion. So you see, we, we give ourselves up in utter weakness in utter helplessness, in utter confusion. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, the Lord spoke to Paul when Paul was asking for him to remove a terrible weakness of his own. And he said, my power is made perfect in weakness. So you see, this victory of obedience that we see in Abraham giving himself up to the will of God in the midst of darkness and confusion and mystery. It was a victory over the temptation to question the integrity of God. The temptation to question the integrity of God. And it became in the end, didn't it, a vindication of the faithfulness of God. As we believe in his integrity and the goodness of this God, And all of this is flowing from verse 6, where he says, we must believe that he is and that he rewards those that seek him. That he is a rewarder of those that seek him. That we can give our lives up to him in the midst of our confusion. 
I love what one writer said. He promised himself a blessing out of the ashes of his son. Do you do that with the promises of God? Do you promise yourself blessing out of the promises of God? That's where we've really got to be. Constantly proclaiming the promises to ourselves. Believing the promises. And, and, and promising to ourselves through His promise blessings out of the ashes of our lives. Out of the destructions of our lives. Out of the horrible mistakes of our lives. Out of the failures of our lives. Ashes! You know, There was nothing for Him to believe that the mighty power of God somehow was going to bring blessing out of the midst of what appeared on every way to be a tragedy and an ending. He knew, and this is what you and I must know always, God cannot be your adversary. He cannot be your adversary. Believer, He cannot and will not be against you. He'll be against you in your sin. That is, he's not going to be supportive and pat you on the back and let you go your way and say, that's okay. I'm not talking about that. But he's not against you to bring harm to you or to bring anything but blessing. As the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I love what F.F. Bruce says. Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Abraham came up with a new one. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away and the Lord gives back. (laughs) That the Lord takes away Isaac, but he's going to give Isaac back to me. And if he takes away that thing that is most precious to you, takes away something in your life or a lifestyle or a place to live or certain kind of relationship. All of these things that you think, I just can't be happy now. Life's not going to be what I thought it would be. So, God cannot bless you. He will not bless you. He didn't mean this as part of His blessing for you. What appears to be madness, foolishness, or cruelty is wisdom, righteousness, and mercy in a key that we cannot hear except in His promise. What appears to be madness, foolishness, or cruelty is wisdom, righteousness, and mercy. And it's in a key that you cannot hear except in His promise. No wonder that, the, that Peter says in Second Peter, it is through the promises that you partake of God. It's through promise that you partake of God in the darkness of confusion. So how about with us? Have you had everything come crashing down? Something crashing down? Have you had your world fall apart? Have you had to face the fact that some dream you've treasured is simply not going to happen? What do you hold on to? Who do you hold on to? Have you ever felt that God is mocking His promise? That God is squeezing the last bit of sense and order out of life? That He's finally closed the door on any meaning at all? What's the point? Where is it going to get me? What this forces each of us to ask is this. What is my true life? What is my treasure in life? 
Can I hold on to a treasure that can never be destroyed? Can I have a treasure that so consumes me and enlivens me and enriches me that will never pass away? That sustains me? What is your dream? At the end of the day, no matter what the day brings, what are you living for? Which brings us to this word test. He tested Abraham. And here the writer underscores that. The testing to find out. Of course, as Calvin and others have pointed out, it's not as though God is testing something and he's curious. He's saying, I wonder what Abraham's like here. But they speak in terms of of a human being and God's given qualities that appear to be human here and the way he tests. But it's to bring out. Is to bring out what is in our hearts. And of course, this testing of Abraham, instead of breaking him, as Derek Kidner says, brings him to the summit of his lifelong walk with God. So testing is not simply to discover, but it's to bring you into whole new realms of the experience of God's grace. It's to build you up in him. It's to advance you in your fellowship with him. And it's interesting, this word is first used there in Genesis 22. It's not used again until Israel in the wilderness. And it's clear as they are being tested that they're reading the very account of Abraham being tested. And they're trying, God means for them to apply the word to their lives. This was set before them as a pattern for their own testing. How valuable to this wilderness generation when the promise seemed hopeless. They're in the wilderness. They have no food and water and they're going to a land and they find out that it's impossible to to defeat the enemy. So. As most of the first generation did, they threw up their hands and said, God's brought us out here to kill us and they wouldn't enter the land. There was no way for the promise to come true. No way to win the land. How similar to this. There was no way for this to be true. And yet Abraham believed and trusted God's power to bring it about. That was to encourage Israel to believe the same thing in the face of odds that could not be overcome. There's no way. And yet we will walk in the, in the life of Abraham. We will walk in the faith of Abraham. So will Israel live in this freedom to which he called them a freedom of fellowship with God in the presence of God, even if it's in the wilderness, this freedom of worship and dependence in an unknown and unfamiliar physical circumstance? Or will they choose to live in their comfortable slavery and still be looking over their shoulder at Egypt? And they wouldn't leave their sin, essentially. They wouldn't believe in the goodness of God, as the Psalms underscore talking about this. And they failed and died in the wilderness. But the second generation led by Joshua and Caleb, who fought against the other ten men. Kids, we don't have many of my kids, but twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good, right? (laughs) Some of you older ones are in here, but... Joshua and Caleb, the two good, now marked the very faith of the second generation. 
And they went in and took the land, even though the odds were the same. The difficulty was the same. The enemies were the same. One generation turns away and dies in the wilderness. Another generation follows the faith of Abraham against odds that were too great. And they took the land. And so God, of course, the lesson is that he will be testing us as well. And we, by his grace, will be showing over and over that we love him above all else. That we will obey him no matter the cost. And we will obey him no matter how little we can fathom his ways. One of the older writers says this. He tempts his servants not only when he subdues the affections of the flesh, but when he reduces their senses to nothing. That he may lead them to a complete renunciation of themselves. When I cannot fathom what God is doing and I give myself to his will. So be careful of choosing the promise of God over the God of promise. The promise is good and sure. It's full and rich. It's absolutely satisfying. It's complete in every way imaginable. It's beyond our imagination, but it's not necessarily now. The complete fulfillment of his promise. There's a lot that is now a whole lot. And it's so much that you need to write it all down as I give it to you. This is what you're absolutely guaranteed right now. Every day, all the day. You ready? God. (laughs) You got it? G-O-D. Now, that's huge. It's unlimited. It will bring amazing things into every aspect of your day. It will bring comfort and peace and hope and energy and strength to love and endure and give yourself to the best things for your family, your work, your friends and community. But you will be setting your hope on the future promise of God. I'm not sure how to pronounce this Old Testament professor's name. Dagweed? Is that close? I don't know. D-A-G-U-I-D. Teaches at Westminster. He says, I must place all my hope beyond the grave. Jesus calls all of us to suffer with him now so that we may be glorified with him hereafter. We must share in his cross so that we may share in his crown. We must be willing, if necessary, to have all of God's good promised postponed until eternity. All of God's good That is promised, postponed until eternity. God and God alone must be enough for us. God himself was more important than anything else to Abraham. And you see, this is connected to yours and my sin. The reason We do not give up our sin. The reason we hold on to its patterns is we're unwilling to trust his goodness. We're unwilling to give ourselves in the hands of this God. We refuse to believe that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. 
And in the end, he must be a greater treasure and a reward than anything sin can offer you. But in closing. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think I'm missing this whole sheet and that's going to be great, huh? I think I recall everything I was going to say. The Lord Jesus said to Peter when Peter drew his sword that he could call armies and armies of angels to come and deliver him. You remember that? He could have turned the whole mountain to smoke. He could have turned all of Jerusalem. He could have turned the whole earth to smoke if he chose. But he gave himself over into the hands of pathetic human beings whose very life he sustained as the Son of God. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. They think that Isaac did the same. And so as an example, the fact that he was bound freely shows that he was submitting himself. And so he's an example of of Christ. Christ ascended the hill, bearing the very wood on which he would be sacrificed, even as Isaac did. He allowed himself to be bound to that wood as Isaac did. The night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had obviously seen the wrath of God looming over his head, about to crush him completely. Matthew tells us he became anguished and distressed. Mark adds the idea that he was amazed. He was, we probably would have the word, he was in shock as to what he was facing. He told his disciples, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And as he prayed, an angel actually came and supported him in a grief that would have overwhelmed him physically. We're told that he sweat drops of blood. And into this darkness and confusion, into this blackness of the wrath of God that he was facing, he still gave himself. Even on the cross, he enters into the cry of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a man who was shocked and shattered. There is a man whose whose insides were clawed out, who didn't know what was happening in his life. And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And here is our Lord on the cross crying out that same cry of darkness and confusion. And he was truly entering in and he knew it, the blackness and the darkness of the wrath of God. And still he gave himself. Still he gave himself. It was infinitely greater than Abraham. The faith and the trust of the Son of God and the submission to his Father. And he did it for your sake. He did it for my sake. He did it so that he would be that ram that was substituted for Isaac. He is both Isaac and he's the substitute. He's the true son who sacrificed himself. He's the ram who substituted for Isaac. But there was, of course, no substitute for him. And whereas the father spared Isaac, it says in Romans 8, no doubt, as a contrast, he who did not spare his own son but freely delivered him up for us all. You see, it's okay 
to be confused. It's okay to face darkness. It's okay to not know what end is up. Jesus didn't either. He was to the point, he said, my heart, I'm, I'm about to grieve and I'm about to fall apart. And angels had to hold him up. Isn't it wonderful that he learned obedience through the things he suffered? Earlier, Rome, uh, Hebrews 5. And then the writer says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And part of the problem when you're facing these difficulties is the guilt of the struggle, the guilt of feeling so lost and feeling so frustrated and feeling so dark and struggling to believe. And Christ has entered into it so that he would be able to identify exactly with everything that you would ever suffer. And so the writer says in the very next chapter, looking to Jesus, and here's an encouragement, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We can come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I will give it up. I will not stand. I will not continue to believe like Abraham did or that generation or the Lord Jesus. And he says, I'm the author of faith. I'm the mighty one who will enable you to believe. I'm your savior. Helplessly fall before me and trust me. Cry out to me like a blind man and I will sustain you and save you. What did I say to that couple? I said, all I, all I could say is, I said, all I can tell you is that Jesus died on the cross. That's all I can say. That Jesus died on the cross. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you have borne our sin, the sin of our unbelief, the sin of our refusal to trust you, to trust God to call Him good, to, to turn away from sin and temptation. As we even confess, Lord, the toys that we want to hold on to, the divided nature of our heart. Oh, Lord, we just come to You now just as we are. In all of our twisted hearts, though we may be redeemed, there's so much left in us, Lord, that needs to change. And so we come in the words of that hymn, just as I am. Or as we've already sung, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Lord Jesus, we come to you. Enrich us, sustain us. Thank you that your death takes away all of our sin. That we can stand before the Father absolutely clean. That there is no condemnation. Oh Lord, we trust you. You're a faithful high priest. You've taken away our sin. And you're a faithful high priest and you enter into our pain. You're a faithful high priest. You will bring about faith in our hearts. You will sustain us. You're the perfecter of faith. And we would, by your grace, Lord, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Who himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross.
Oh, Lord, may we follow you by your Holy Spirit who indwells us, the very Spirit that enabled you to give yourself up, as this same writer says, that Spirit dwell in us so that we, for the joy set before us, may endure whatever is brought our way. And we may endure it in this way, that we will love you and love others. And that we will be the light of Jesus Christ, whatever you may do to us, Lord. We rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.